Section 12 of Mother Earth Number 3. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Mother Earth Number 3. Section 12. Gerhard Hauptmann with Weavers of Silesia by Max Baginski. When I look at the last engraving in the illustrated edition of Hanala at the angel of death with the impenetrable brow over whom Hanala passes into the region of beauty, I have the consciousness that that is Gerhard Hauptmann, such is the inexhaustible wealth of his inner world. The stress of the life effort and the certainty of death groping forth from delicate intimacies ripened the fineness and sweetness of this man's soul. The picture contains transitoriness, finiteness, yet also a vista of new formation, new land. Of Gerhard Hauptmann, one can say, his art has given meaning to the idea of human love, which in this period is looked upon with suspicious eyes as a bad coin, a new impetus, the reality and symbolic depth of which grips the heart. Out of his books one can draw life more than literature. A strong soul similarity with Tolstoy might be observed, I think, if Hauptmann were a fighting spirit. I met the poet among the weavers of the Eulengeberge, Silesia, in the districts of greatest human misery, February 1891, in Langenbilau, the large Silesian weaving village. One evening, on my return from a journey, I was informed that a tall gentleman in black had inquired for me. The name of the stranger was Gerhard Hauptmann who came to study the conditions of the weaving districts. The visitor had taken lodgings in the Preussischenhof, where I called on him the same evening, with joyous expectation. The name of Gerhard Hauptmann in those days seemed to contain a watchword, a battle-call, not only against the unimportant thrones of literature at that time, but also against social oppression, prejudices, and moral crippling. Hauptmann's first drama, For Sonnenaufgang, had just appeared, and had been produced by the Free Stage in Berlin, and had operated like an explosive. It was followed by a flood of vicious and vile criticism. The literary clique little imagined that the future held great success for such stuff, both in book form and on the stage. This lamentable lack of judgment misled the various potboiler writers to attack the new tendency with the most repulsive arguments. One leading paper of those days wrote of Hauptmann as an individual of a pronounced criminal physiognomy of whom one could expect nothing else but dirty, appalling things. Such literary highway assaults made one feel doubly happy over the fact that, together with Hauptmann, were a few splendidly armed fighters, like the aged Fontaine, with his great poise and fine exactness. The first impression of Hauptmann was that he was not a man of easy social courage, rather discreet, almost shy and uncommunicative, an absorbed, deep dreamer, yet a keen observer of the human all too human, not easily led astray, not Goethe, rather Holderlin. The guest-room of the Preussischenhof contained many empty benches. The keeper thereof had ample time to meditate over the mission of the strange gentleman in the weaving district. I learned the next morning that he had quite decided that Hauptmann was some government emissary, entrusted with examining the prevailing distress of the weavers. One thing, however, appeared suspicious. The man associated with the Reds, 
who, according to the government newspaper, only exaggerated the need and poverty to incite the people for their own political ends. Whether or not the misery of the weavers that winter had reached such a point as to warrant an official investigation had been the topic of discussion for weeks. The state attorney, too, had taken an active part in the matter. The criticism in the labor paper The Proletarian, of which I was the editor, that the exorbitant profit-making methods of the manufacturers, which left the workers nothing to live on, were met with a number of indictments against the paper on the following grounds. It was indictable to incite the public at the moment when the prevailing poverty was in itself sufficient to arouse the people and cause danger, that this was criminal and therefore punishable. The distress was thereby officially acknowledged. Was that not sufficient? Why then hold the conditions up before the special attention of the people? We mapped out a tour through the home-weaving settlements. At Langenbilau, the textile industry had to a large extent been carried on in mills and factories, and at a higher wage. Misery was not so appalling and hopeless there, as in the huts of the home-weavers. The following days unrolled a horrible picture before the eyes of the poet, the figures of Baumann and Ansorge from his play The Weavers became real. With mute accusation on their lip, they moved before the human eye in tangible shape, yet one longed to believe they were only phantoms. They lived, but how they lived was a burning shame to civilization, huts standing deep in the snow like whitened sepulchres, and despair staring from every nook in these days of paternal care, just as at the time of the famine that swept across the district, in 1844. Strewn among the hills and valleys lay bits of industry that had been passed by technical progress as so many damned, spook-like spots. And yet those who vegetated, worked, and gradually perished here were compelled to compete with the great productive giants of steel and iron machinery. The poet entered these homes not with the spirit of a cool observer, nor as a Samaritan. He came as man to man, with no appearance of one stooping to poor Lazarus, Indeed, it seemed as though Hauptmann walked with a much steadier gait in the path of human misery than on the road of conventionality. Steinseifersdorf, situated beyond Peterswaldau, a bare snow-field spread about huts of clay, shingles and branches without a sign of life, neither a cat, dog, nor sparrow, not even chimney smoke, to indicate the activity of the inhabitants. Heated dwellings in this stretch of land are luxuries, difficult of achievement, and how is one to prepare a warm meal out of nothing? We attempted to enter one of the huts to the right. There was no path leading to it, so that we were compelled to work our way through the deep snow. Was it possible that human beings breathed within? The old weather-worn shanty looked as if the slightest breeze would tumble it over. The few wooden steps leading to the entrance creaked underneath our steps, and our knock was met with dead silence. We knocked again, and this time heard a faint step, slowly moving toward the door. A heavy wooden bolt was moved aside, and we perceived a human face, with the expression of a wounded, frightened animal, like a delinquent caught at the offence. The human being at the door stared at the invaders. Not a ray of hope enlivened the dead expression. No doubt the man had long ceased to expect amelioration of his needs from his fellow beings. The figure was covered with rags, and what rags? Not the kind of rags that tramps wear and which they throw off when luck strikes them, but eternal rags that seemed to have grown to the skin, to have mingled with it so long that they had become part of it, disgustingly filthy, 
but the only cover he had, and that he could not throw away. The man, about fifty years of age, was silent, and led us through a dirty, cold, grey entry into a room. In front of the loom we observed the drooping figure of a woman, a cold oven, four dirty wet walls, at one of them a wooden bunk also covered with rags that served as bedding, nothing else. The man murmured something to the woman. She rose. Both had inflamed eyes, water dripping from them with the same monotony as from the walls. Hauptmann began to speak hesitatingly, depressed by the sight of such misery. He received a few harsh replies. The last piece of cloth had been delivered some time since. There was neither bread, flour, potatoes, coal, nor wood in the house. In fact, no food or fuel of any sort. This was said in a subdued, fearful voice, as if they expected severe censure or punishment. Hauptmann gave the woman some money. The thought of going without leaving sufficient for a supply of food, at least for the next few days, was agony. On the widening of the road stood the village inn. The guest-room showed little comfort. The innkeeper looked worn and in bad spirits. No trade. Innkeepers of factory towns are better off. They can afford guest-rooms of a higher order, since they enjoy the patronage of bookkeepers, clerks, and teachers. In Stein Seifersdorf, one had to depend on the weavers, and that did not bring enough for a square meal, especially in the winter. The wife of the innkeeper assured us that the misery in Kaschbach, a neighboring village, was even greater, even more awful. It was getting late, so we decided to go there the following day. Our conversation on our ride homeward dwelt on the fate of these unfortunates, condemned by modern industrialism to a life of the inferno. I asked Hauptmann what an effect an artistic, dramatic representation of such a fate could possibly have. He replied that his inclinations were more for summer night's dreams towards sunny vistas, but that an impelling inner force urged him to use this appalling want as an object of his art. As for the hoped-for effect, human beings are not insensible. Even the most satisfied, the most comfortable, or rich, must be gripped in his innermost depths when pictures of such terrible human wretchedness are being unrolled before him. Every human being is related to another. My remark that the right of possession has the tendency to blind those who are part of it, Hauptmann would not accept as generally true. He was anxious to bring the sympathies of the wealthy into energetic activity, sympathies that would, of course, bring to the poor real relief from their hideous conditions. He added that the poverty of the masses had at times tortured him to such an extent that he was unable to partake of his meals, which were meagre enough, especially during his student life in Zurich, yet he had felt ashamed of partaking of such luxury as a cup of coffee even then. I had to admit that I could not share his hopes of the influence of an artistic portrayal of the sufferings of the weavers upon the people of wealth. Self-satisfied virtue is hard to move. Rather did I believe that a great work of art treating of the life of the masses was bound to rouse their consciousness to their own conditions. At that time, I believe, Hauptmann had already completed his weavers. His journey into the weaving district was not to collect material for the structure of that tremendous play, rather than it was devoted to details, localities, and landscapes. He had already drawn up the outline for his other play, College Crampton, portraying a genial and joyous man, of whom narrowness and miserableness of surroundings make a caricature, and who is finally wrecked. Langenbilau, 
after our journey through the Golgotha of poverty, seemed a place of relief. The mills, with the increasing noise of machines that dulls the ears and racks the nerves, are by no means an elevating sight, but they bring the working men together and awaken their feeling and understanding of solidarity and the necessity for concerted action. Here, in spite of sunken chests, great fatigue, poor nourishment, one felt the breeze of the struggling proletarian mind that indicated a new land of regeneration beyond the misery of our times. For one of the evenings a gathering of the older weavers was arranged. Hauptmann had a plate set for each one. During the meal a lively discussion developed. There was one weaver, Matthias, very bony, and with a skin like parchment, very poor, but blessed with many children. He related of a bet he had won. The owner of the tavern where we were having our feast had expressed doubt as to the ability of Matthias to consume three pounds of pork at once. He volunteered to do it if the meat would be paid for and a quantity of beer added to it. A neighbor was entrusted with the preparation of the roast. At the appointed hour Matthias appeared, together with two other men as witnesses of the contest. The prize-eating began when Matthias was confronted by an obstacle. Five children belonging to the neighbor surrounded the table, with their eyes widely opened at the unusual sight of a roast. Their little faces expressed great desire, and their mouths began to water. The prize-eater felt very uncomfortable before the longing look of the children. He imagined himself a hard-hearted guzzler, only concerned about his own stomach. He forgot the bet, cut up some of the meat, and was about to place it before the children when a howl of protest arose. This was not permitted. If he wanted to win, he would have to eat the entire roast himself. Matthias submitted but dropped his eyes in shame before the children. Time and again he involuntarily passed portions of the meat to them, but his attempts were frustrated by renewed protests. He could not continue, however, until the little ones were taken out into the cold. There was no other place, since the only room was taken up by the parties concerned in the contest. They might have been put into the cold, dark garret, but that would have been too cruel, and would have made Matthias unable to carry out the feat. The undertaking was finished, but the winner felt quite wretched. He was conscious of having committed a great sin against the simplest of human demands. The conversation turned to the uprising of the weavers in 1844. Many incidents of those days were related. Various legend-like and fantastic stories told. Also names of people of the neighborhood who had participated in that historic event. The entire affair was very informal and simple, and not an atom of the oppressive atmosphere one feels in the relations between the members of the upper and lower stations of life. The next morning we started for Kaschbach. The place looked even more dismal than the one we had visited the day previous. In one of the huts, a weaver, with a swollen arm in a sling, led us into a corner of the room. On a bunk covered with straw and rags lay a woman with a little baby near her, its body was covered with a terrible rash, perfectly bare, almost hidden within the floor rags. The shy father, himself in pain, stood near, the personification of helplessness. If only there were food in the house. The district physician? He would have been compelled to prescribe food, light, warmth, and sanitation for every hut he visited if he did not wish his science to prove a mockery. He could not do that, so he came but rarely. Humanitarianism, thus far, your name is impotency. All that could be done was to leave money and hurry out into the air. The next abode might be considered pleasant compared with the previous one. 
Two elderly people, not so worn and one, and not so ragged. The man was weaving, still having some work at times. His wife, very pleasant and amiable, was almost ready to praise the good fortune of their home. We are better off than our neighbours, she said, with some pride. She pointed to a freshly cut loaf of bread, to the fire in the oven, to a table and a real bed. A great fortune, indeed. The walls were covered with some coloured prints, representing virtue, patience, endurance to the end. One picture showed the return of the prodigal son, won the ejection of Hagar from the house of Abraham. Our hostess could boast of the luxury of a coffee-mill even, and after she had ground and brewed the coffee we were invited to partake of it, which we gratefully did. Local and general affairs were talked over. The man, quite talkative, but careful and reticent in his remarks, especially when religious and political questions were approached. His remarks were kept within careful lines so as not to offend. Hauptmann said afterwards that he had noticed such cautiousness in all weavers. No doubt it had grown out of the great poverty that often brought out diffidence and reticence towards strangers. Hauptmann sat on a low stool, and, while we were sipping our coffee, the woman petted him tenderly on the brow. "'Yes, yes, young man, want, the awfulness of want, but we cannot complain.' At our departure she pointed to a hut nearby and said, "'The people in there are nearly starved.' It was not exaggerated. When we entered we saw a woman in the dismal grey of the room, surrounded by a number of crying children, two or three of the maturer girls, thin and pale and drawn out by the Procrustean bed of poverty, secretly wiped the last drops of tears from their suffering faces. Hunger reigned supreme within these walls. The woman, in the last stage of pregnancy, suffered the keenest under the lamentations of the younger children, to whom she could give no food. The husband had been gone two days on a begging tramp. He would surely bring home something, though it was very difficult to get anything in this neighbourhood. One must tramp a long distance for a piece of bread. Yesterday they could still obtain a few potatoes, but today she had nothing more to give nor did she know what to tell the children. She had implored the minister to let her have something to eat, if only a few morsels, but he had nothing himself, he said. The tightly pressed lips of the older girls trembled violently. Every breath of the family was despair. Our presence had silenced the cries of the children with the frost-bitten faces, but when we left they again would tear the heart of their mother, their weak little voices calling for bread. No one could expect such fatalism from these starving little ones, that they should coolly and philosophically analyse the economic necessity that had condemned their parents to a desperate battle with hunger. The only thing that could perform miracles here was a coin. The poor woman did not dare to believe that she actually held one in her hand. That which was to secure these unfortunates relief from death, at the same moment fostered elsewhere conceit corruption and extravagance and is being used for the conversion of heathen to brotherly love the terrible sight of this mother and her little ones conjured up the heartlessness and emptiness of all philanthropy and charity for dumb misery greatest of all social crimes that makes the possibility of stilling the hunger of the little children dependent on money one morning hauptmann and i went on foot to reichenbach where i introduced him to an old weaver a socialist who had participated in the cooperative scheme proposed by Bismarck. The old man had much of interest to relate of this venture, that had been very meagerly assisted by the government. 
He said that the association could have survived had it not been for the conspiracy of the manufacturers who had a large capital at their disposal. The result of this for the cooperative movement was the closing of the market. At one time all the weaving products sent to the Leipzig fair had to be transported back. A clandestine but effective boycott had made the sale thereof impossible. With much more gusto he related the days of La Salle's agitation that had brought life into the still limbs of the masses. A great change had seemed to be at hand. The wife of our old friend, too, had hoped for change, but now she remarked, somewhat resigned, We old people would rejoice if we were confident that the young generation would live to bring about the change. In this house we met a widow with a thirteen-year-old daughter. Hauptmann found the child very striking. She had beautiful, soft, golden-blonde hair, deep-set eyes, and a very delicate, pale complexion. I learned later that he had sent her occasional gifts, and when I read Hanala, I could not rid myself of the thought that the vision of this child from Reichenbach must have haunted him when he created this drama. That was my last outing with Hauptmann in the textile regions. A few months later I visited him at his home, located in the woods, close to the edge of a mountain. Still later, when I was serving a term of imprisonment at the Schweidnitzer prison for my sins in exercising too much freedom of the press, I was overjoyed one morning by the news that Hauptmann had sent me a box of books. Through his kindness, Gottfried Keller, Conrad Ferdinand Meyer, and other authors have illumined many dreary days of my cell life. All the books reached me safely, but the weavers, which had just been published at that time, and that I could not get hold of in spite of every effort, the inspector had strict orders to consider that book as contraband. Every time I went into the office to change one book for another, I saw the weavers on the table. The temptation to shove the book under my jacket at an opportune moment was very great and trying, but unfortunately the state attorney had instilled the idea into the head of the inspector that it was a very dangerous work. He never took his eyes from it. Gerhard Hauptmann, remained to the Schweidnitzer prison administration the most dangerous prohibited author. End of section 12 Recording by Stephen Harvey